to uh, to hold up in this situation. This is it. Offense is back out on the field. Two receivers out to each side. Rifle set here for the Titans. At the Mary Hart Baylor 35-yard line, Casper looking to throw, looking for Totorella, and it is completely picked off right into the hands of Matt Cody. He buries it, he sits down on it, and the celebration starts with 35 seconds to go. That is exactly how Mary Harden Baylor would have written its own finish. Last week against Mountain Union, defending a two-point lead, the defense goes out, gets a turnover. In the Stag Bowl, defending a three-point lead, the defense makes the play. Senior middle linebacker, Matt Cody. Couldn't write a much better ending than that for Mary Hardenville. It's now time to go around the nation in Division Three football. And here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. Allow me to be the 21,398th person to wish you a happy new year and welcome to the 2017 edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. This is a monthly podcast during the offseason and it's weekly from Labor Day through the Stag Bowl. I'm Pat Coleman, executive editor of D3Football.com. And uh, the 2017 season is one that will contain 250 Division Three football teams, maybe. More on that in a few minutes. But uh, ever more competition, of course, for the same number of at-large bids in a 32-team playoff headed to Stag Bowl 45 in Salem, Virginia. But we're a long way from at-large bids and uh, regional rankings and all that and the walnut and bronze. So I welcome in co-host Keith McMillan, especially Keith, since uh, we're not that far removed from a great season and a great title game from 2016. Sure, and what will stand out from... This past season is that somebody new won the Stag Bowl, and so that gives a little bit of renewed hope to all of the elite programs who are not Mount Union, not Wisconsin-Whitewater, and not St. Thomas, all those programs around the country, all of the ones who are sort of up and coming. So anybody who has won seven games in the past year or two feels like maybe we have a chance to uh, to advance a couple rounds in the playoffs to be competitive. You saw games like the the Alfred um Mount Union game or the Johns Hopkins Mount Union game in the playoffs where they were you know, competitive in certain ways. You know, Alfred scores 45 points but gives up 70. But um, there were there were that great Wisconsin Platteville St. John's game in the first round. There was there were so many of those uh, this season. And, and when you dump, you know, 31 games into five weeks, uh, you know, they're not all going to be great playoff games. But I thought we got really lucky this season in the uh, in the final three weeks in the semifinal round and in the stag bowl and those were super defensive games which uh carter hansen will tell you later in the podcast that he enjoyed and i enjoyed as well but the great thing was that they were close games there were some fresh faces and that gives us a little bit of excitement going into next season because now you want to see uh how does mount union and, and whitewater and st thomas those three programs bounce back how do um, how does Mary Harden Baylor replace everything that they lost and, and still try to defend their championship and then which new programs come up and so we'll get a chance to talk to uh, to a couple of programs on the rise uh, later here in in the podcast and I think um, it's always a little odd for me to to dive back into football here at, at the end of January because the way the Stag Bowl wraps up kind of in a tidy package before Christmas or you know before whichever holidays you guys are out there celebrating you uh everything's done 
and you go through New Year's, you start fresh, and you know there's some news trickles out about coaching hires and stuff, but you almost kind of put D3 football on the back burner. I think it's good for us to check in with the podcast every month um, and, and keep things top of mind. Um, we can deal with, you know, like uh, recruiting NFL stuff. And really, and this is what I think is really nice and important, is uh, get a chance to talk to people who aren't in the middle of a season and have their thoughts sort of all jumbled by what's going to happen this next Saturday. Uh, we get some really good insight here in the off season. Yeah, we started these off-season podcasts last year, and so if, if you weren't around for uh, one of those, um, you obviously – Keith and I don't have a, a rundown of games to talk about or games that are coming up. What we do is uh, we bring in a few guests each month. Uh, typically, we interview three people. My goal, just to let you know is when I'm putting it together, is uh, obviously if we're talking to three people, it's hard to hit all four regions in the same month. So uh, we end up hitting on three of the four regions in Division Three, and uh, we'll rotate through those. So uh, the one that's not represented this month is the South, and we'll get to, we'll get a South interview for you next month. But basically, my other goal, too, is to get one uh, consensus national contender every month um, and then a couple of other really interesting stories, no matter where they might fall in the Division Three echelon. So uh, coming up a little bit later in this podcast, we'll talk with Rick Finati. He's the new head coach at John Carroll University. We talked to him uh, on his fifth day on the job, so there's a, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, Keith mentioned we'll talk with Carter Hansen. Of course, he is the uh, Gallardi Trophy winner, the uh, linebacker for St. John's University, uh, his team got into the second round of the playoffs this past year. And then we'll talk with Dale Olmsted, the head coach at Nichols, whose team uh, you may not have paid much attention to over the course of the past six years, unless you were looking at the very bottom of the Division Three uh, standings, pecking order, that sort of thing. And they had a surprising 6-4 and four season this past year in his third year as head coach. So we'll talk about all three and with all three of those people. But, you know, also other stuff going on in Division Three right now, other things of note. Of course, the big game is coming up. Um, wait, we're allowed to say Super Bowl, right, Keith? Yeah, when you're a news organization, right? As long as you're not making money off of it, the NFL won't come after you. Oh, we're not making money off of it. Uh, so Super Bowl's coming up. Uh, and while most D3 fans probably know Bill Belichick went to Wesleyan, and that's a D3 school, they may not know or remember that uh, Falcons coach Dan Quinn did so as well. Uh, Quinn, a defensive lineman, two-year starter at Salisbury State University before it became Salisbury University, uh, eventually embarking on an NFL coaching career that uh, brought him to Atlanta before last season. And that's a, that's a, that's a pretty cool matchup for Division Three fans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's becoming more and more common uh, now that you have more Division Three folks in front offices across the NFL to uh, to to give guys chances with um, unique backgrounds. One of the things that tends to be true about a D3 guy is he comes in ready to put his nose to the grindstone and, and work and, uh, and and coaches love that. So, um you know, Belichick, not only is, is he a Wesleyan guy, but his offensive and defensive coordinators are, are D3 guys. Matt Patricia is from RPI. Josh McDaniels from John Carroll. Those guys worked their way up. And I think uh, same thing. Dan Quinn took a much more circuitous route to get to his head coaching opportunity. Um, but he's also those guys are also not the only ones that there are folks uh, in D3 that that get in on the ground level and work their way up. And uh, that's sort of a lesson, I guess, if, if you're listening to this as someone who wants to get into coaching, you see D3 guys move up the ranks. Um, you know, the new head coach at Texas is a, is a, a former D3 player. You see guys now in D3 as front office personnel. Uh, a lot of them are John Carroll folks. Um, 
but he also for a long, long time Springfield had a pipeline into NFL assistant roles through Schottenheimers and, and other names that you might recognize like that. So um, that's another thing that we get a chance to do in the offseason podcast, too, is kind of figure out what the future is for uh, for certain players in, uh, in D3. You know, the one that really stands out from the ones we did last year was talking to Griffin Neal from uh, from Concordia Moorhead about his uh, routes, you know, to get ready for the NFL and, and to whether he's going to play overseas or get a shot and he ends up getting a shot with the saints. So there, th- those, I feel like those lessons are things we get to talk about a lot more in the off season. And I think it's pretty, uh, pretty cool that we get to do that. And I think it's pretty cool that we get to watch a super bowl <laughs> with two head coaches who are uh, D three grads. And uh, John Carroll has a uh, connection on the Falcon side as well. Uh, head strength and conditioning coach, Jesse Ackerman was a, uh, former Blue Streak player and was a grad assistant for five years back in the, I guess we would say the mid-aughts, which um, it makes me feel old to say that. So there's a, a lot of stuff to, to watch there. And we will definitely keep track of the uh, of the player movement in terms of that sort of thing. We'll talk to, oh, we hope to talk to somebody about, uh, you know, being prepared to be an NFL prospect uh, when we have our February podcast. Because that'll be Yeah, more, looking forward to it. Yeah, that'll be more, it'll be closer to that time. Uh, let's see. I mentioned uh, possibly 250 teams next year. We had 248 that we tracked last year, and uh, two schools that are coming in, beginning their transition into Division Three. That's Brevard College in North Carolina. Uh, they will be joining the USA South. Dean College in Massachusetts, which is a former two-year school. Uh, Brevard's coming from Division Two. Uh, Dean is transitioning into a four-year program and is going to be in the ECFC, and we will start tracking both of those teams. Um, but the reason why we might not be at 250 is because we're hearing rumblings we might be losing Maranatha Baptist. Um, you know, that might be understandable, though, because that program is in a really tough situation just kind of in general. Yeah, Pat, every year when we do po- um, kickoff, not podcast, every year when we do kickoff, we one of the questions we ask the coaches is how many people do you have to camp? And, and Maranatha Baptist uh, almost always has one of the, the lowest numbers. It's a very non traditional school it's it's also a very small school even by division three terms so keeping the program afloat was always a challenge and uh and then once you're not in a conference that adds kind of another challenge in that you don't have eight or nine games built into your schedule so you so it consumes a lot of the coach's time in the off season uh, where you could be working on ways to improve your your program you're calling around looking for games and and um that that is it's kind of a two it's just a really two really tough ways to run a program always you know you always want to fill the roster out with as many players and promising prospects and, and kids with leadership uh traits as possible and then you also want to have you know a good set of games built in and th- those are just two two tough challenges so um division three has done a great job over the past uh, say like five ten years of all the the schools who are kind of out there floating as independents, almost all of them have found their way into conferences. And uh, Maranatha Baptist is actually one of the ones who's found its way out of a conference and, and sort of doesn't have a home. Yeah. Maranatha was in the Northern Athletics Collegiate Conference for several years um, after, uh, and just was not able to kind of maintain enough to be in membership for that conference as a whole. Uh, for whatever reason, the conference made that decision. Uh, when I talked with Nathan Spate last year, that was his after his first full off season as head coach, and even then having a little trouble filling out roster. We were talking about, well, here's the five guys who are in the mix for both offensive and defensive line, kind of depending on where the other kids show up, kind of thing. And that's a, a really difficult way to build a program. You only had 670 kids in the school in general, and 
Um, I have not seen them on any schedules for 2017. They did play six games against Division Three opponents last year, uh, but we don't have any of those teams' schedules so far for 2017. Um, and that's something that, of course, that also we're working on here over the course of the next couple of months is getting 2017 schedules on the website for you. Some of them, however, don't exist, so we're working on that. Last topic before we uh, start jumping into our interviews, of course, is, is something that hit the front page near the end of last week, Keith, and that's uh, the situation going on at McMurray or going on with McMurray University players in Fort Worth, Texas, where uh, Ryan McBeth, Darnell Dock, B.J. Ross, uh, two of them starters for the Warhawks, arrested on capital murder charges, and, um, you know, these are... Not things that happen. Well, I should be honest with you. Arrested on capital murder charges aren't things that happen anywhere in college football or college sports on a regular basis. Um, though it's kind of disappointing, obviously, to see that here too. Pat, we talk about Division Three and its players most of the time in glowing terms, and generally we're pretty spot on and pretty serious um, when we when we talk about that because some of the kids you meet are some of the you know most promising people that you'll meet over the course of of a lifetime, really. But when you put more than 20,000 players all into the same bucket. You know, we can't be under any illusion that they're all great guys or, or finished products. And obviously the accusation and, and situation down in Texas is about as awful as, as you'll come across in, or as awful as we've come across in, in all our time uh, following D3. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't get into too much detail on this podcast because I'm sure the story will be changing pretty significantly over the course of the next month. But uh, you can at least keep an eye out on the front page for uh, any developments that might come up. Um, so we'll continue to track that story because we track the bad news, too, even uh, even though we don't particularly like to read the bad news. Let's put it that way. And this seems like a good time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast currently sponsored by nobody. This is a great time of year to reach coaches and administrators, especially think about coaches who wear both hats. Uh, our raw numbers in terms of listenership won't be as high in the offseason. We understand that, but we feel secure that the coaches are still listening. You can let us know if you are. Uh, and this is the time of year to talk about, uh, you know, video editing systems, uh, helmets and other equipment, uh, overseas tours for next season, all sorts of stuff. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or your service right here before we went to break. So think about that. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com because uh, you're definitely missing out. And I'll give one last shout-out to uh, our uh, sponsors at the end of 2016, uh, both the city of Salem, the hosts of uh, Stag Bowl 44 and every Stag Bowl since 1993, and then Mac and Bob's, which not only sponsored but hosted our final podcast at the end of last season. Thanks, guys. We appreciate that stuff. On the Around the Nation podcast now, we're joined by Rick Finati, first year, first month head coach at John Carroll University. Uh, coach, I know you're not new to Ohio, but uh, what was your impression of Division Three football in the state uh, coming into the job? Well, one, I've been following John Carroll, um, lifelong Clevelander, Eastside Clevelander, uh, growing up. And my grandfather coached here in the 50s when Don Shula was here. Um, you know, we, we always revered John Carroll, revered Division Three football. Uh, when I was a head coach at St. Ed's and an uh, uh, assistant coach at Mayfield and uh, Benedictine, you know, local, local high schools in Cleveland, uh, you know, the type of players that would go to D3 are the, the type of players that really made your programs on Friday nights. And I just love that the, the uh, guys that would take academics, you know, take training, you know, take football seriously and have a, a great, great love for the game. Uh, for those who are uh, unfamiliar with the type of role that you played at the University of Michigan, can you kind of explain what that job entailed? 
Yeah, so I was a lifelong teacher, educator, and, and uh, football coach in Cleveland. Uh, most recently, the head football coach at St. Edward High School on the west side of Cleveland. Won a couple state championships, and Coach Harbaugh called me up to uh, Michigan to be part of his first staff. And my first title was, wasn't, wasn't sorted out till I got up there, I uh, became the director of football operations. So basically, I helped coach and, and the staff. I did everything um, other than put the game plan together. So from the players, roster management, NCAA, uh, to uh, you know scheduling, uh, HR, I did everything uh, that I possibly could in uh, player development, recruiting. So it was great for me. Uh, coming from a head coach in high school to, to basically becoming a right-hand man for the head coach at the major college level at the ground floor uh, was tremendous. So I did that for a year. And then the next year, uh, part of the agreement was that I became the senior defensive analyst um, and helped uh, Don Brown, our new defensive coordinator, install his system, uh, work primarily with the defensive line and uh, the run game, defending the run game um, for, for the University of Michigan and Don Brown and Coach Greg Madison. But so what I hear and what I've heard in a lot of those sorts of jobs is that not a lot of time on the sidelines and definitely not on game day, right? Right. So so like during the game, you, you know, you're on the you're in the in the uh, on the field, um, you know, during practice and you're implementing. But for me, I always look at every opportunity in my career as growth. You know, I went from a freshman football coach in high school to JV, you know, to a position coach to D coordinator to head coach. Uh, now to college, and then now become a head football coach in college. So for me, it was always about growth. You know, I never got hung up on where I, what level I coached, who I was coaching, um, why. I, you know, the reason why I coached was for the, you know, the love of the game, the love of the players, um, you know, development on and off the field. So, so that's the stuff that was really uh, the most beneficial. And what I learned in two years at Michigan, you know, I, I got a doctorate in football. Hey, it's understandable. Uh, I have to say, my dad did research at the University of Michigan when I was at a very formative age, uh, age 7 through about age 12. Uh, so I have some very specific uh, memories of Ann Arbor in the Anthony Carter football era. Um, but what's your, what was your kind of favorite thing about Ann Arbor as a, as a town is kind of what I'm thinking. Oh, as a town, I, I don't – I mean, it's beautiful. It reminds me of some of the little suburbs here, especially where we're at John Carroll University Heights. Uh, just beautiful, uh, older homes, a, a lot of uh, character. Um, you know, it, it's it's a well-to-do suburb, close-knit. So there are a lot of similarities. But Ann Arbor, uh, really just a tremendous foodie town. Um, you know, great uh, restaurants and, and uh, um, just, you know, like breweries and pubs and microbrews. And so it was a a lot of a lot of really cool cutting edge uh, type of cuisine and uh, places to assemble. When you were talking about your uh, coaching experience, uh, you're now going to get to see Division three from the other side. Uh, obviously, you had you know kids who were recruited to Division three. Some uh, some very prominent, well known uh, Division three football players came from St. Ed's, but you know you got to see from the high school perspective, what is your anticipation and some of your early experiences now going out recruiting to a division three school from the college side? Just the one, you know, the, the, the type of type of student athlete, you know, the way I looked at it from a high school coach perspective and the players was they leave for Christmas break, the football season's over, you know, they have a couple weeks off for Christmas break and then they kind of, you know, kind of find themselves a little bit and they come back either, re, you know, re-energized and focused for what they want to do for the future 
So you basically have three types of levels. You got guys that want to play football at the D3 level or D2 level, and, and they're gung-ho, ready to go. You have some that are kind of testing the water. They're not sure, but they keep their options open. And then you just have some that, that aren't interested at all. So we're out there competing for those type of players. You know, and, and Kevin Burke uh, played for me. Yep. He was you know, a great player at Mount Union and, and uh, at St. Edward and Gagliardi winner trophy, national champion Tom Lally. Um, was a great defensive end and might have been player of the year. Uh, or should have been player of the year at Mount Union at, uh, a couple years ago and had a tryout with the Carolina Panthers and, and the Bengals and that. And, and, and being in the office with those guys and, and guys with chips on their shoulders and, and uh, they didn't get the D1 offer or, you know, felt they deserved it. And, you know, they're looking for a place to play, a place to, to make their name and to, and to really go for winning championships. So, and then they took the right attitude and the right, you know, in the right method and, and uh, tr- you know, they're going to get degrees and, and have great jobs and they have a great household name amongst their programs. And so, uh, you know, I, I know those kind of players. They were in my office, they're in my program and, and they've achieved at this level. Uh, so that that's what I'm on the lookout is for those kind of players. Obviously things are still getting started, right? You've been on the job for not, <laughs> not even a couple of weeks, I think. How about, what kind of contact have you had with the players so far at John Carroll? So technically I started one. I was introduced Wednesday evening. I drove in from Ann Arbor, introduced, drove back to Ann Arbor, finished my work, um, jumped in the U-Haul. I called it like D3 style. I moved it myself and <laughs> moved back home with my, you know, my family. They, they stayed here in Cleveland. Uh, I went up there and worked, you know, for two years and did that. And then I uh, was, was in the office, you know, Sunday morning after I moved and, and hit the road Monday. Um, you know, the focus obviously is staffing, recruiting. And most importantly, you can't forget you have a team here that's that has to identify with their coach and, and uh, understand the values and who you are and your personality and, and you know motivate them. So you know just just wearing those three hats right now is the most focused that I have in uh, setting up this program. You mentioned staff. How many staff positions do you have to uh, do you have to fill at this point? Well, we're pretty much everybody. So what we're doing is is uh, most of the guys went with Tom to Tennessee Chattanooga. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a couple guys here. And, and so what I'm doing is I'm taking the approach of, uh, you know, looking at the people. You know, you know, as a head coach, you come in pretty much, you know, when I got notified of the job, I was in, in Miami at the Orange Bowl, um, you know, getting interviewed. So I came in with town to Cleveland for like a day, interviewed and went right back up to Ann Arbor. You know, we had a new semester starting on the 3rd. And had to be back ready to go with the new new recruits coming on campus. Uh, so you don't have a lot of time. So I interviewed, went back to work, and uh, you know you're working and, and you're starting to put your staff together. You know, not a lot of people are here, so you can't take a job without a plan. Yeah. Uh, that that's not fair to the players, and that's not fair to to me. So so I have guys that were have identified and just kind of going through the process right now and getting them up there and, and getting them to move and and do all the things that are necessary to to get them working here in a comfortable setting and, and uh, on the move. This is kind of uncharted territory for the program right now, right? Uh, how how often has it been that somebody other than Mountain Union has been on top of this conference? And so you guys come into this off season with top dog status, I guess, and some kind of maybe extra juice on the recruiting trail, but then so many things have changed over, and Mount Union clearly, because they got to the national semifinals, isn't going away and isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, no, no. This is this is a Ohio athletic conference. It's a tremendous conference. I mean, top to bottom, it's top notch coaching, uh, top notch players. Everybody's 
you know, determined and, and a lot of simpler players. Um, so a lot of these guys have a lot of familiarity from high school. Uh, so it, it's a top-notch program. And, and remember, we're in a society now. It's a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately society. So, yeah, they knew John Carroll went as far as Mountain Union in the playoffs. And then you don't have a coaching staff. You're not in the schools talking to them. Um, they move on to the next person. So, you, you know, so it, it's a it's a timing. It's it's a, it's a, a essence of the moment. And, and you got to capitalize on that. So, fortunately for me, being from Cleveland and, and – um, having an identifiable name in terms of St. Edward and, and East Side Roots and Michigan and, and knowing that. And remember, I was on a tour this summer. I went to probably 50, 50 different cities throughout the United States and worked with some of the greatest coaches in the world. I was in Australia. I was in Samoa. I was in Hawaii. I was in New Zealand, Western Samoa. I was in California, Florida, Baltimore. So I'm working alongside with, with head coaches and, and high school coaches and I'm working with with potential recruits that remember you from the uh, remember you from the camp. So I have a lot of identifiable. I mean, I, I've talked to anywhere this week to probably two to three hundred recruits, and from New Jersey to Florida to Colorado to Utah, um, you know, everybody's got a little bit of a buzz from you know, and, and that just that just speaks to what Coach Harbaugh is doing in Michigan, and uh, you know, and, and the effect and the type of people he has around him that they remember you for you know, what you did in that four hours you were with them on a football field, you know, you, you develop that little bond and you keep in contact with them. So um, we're just expanding our net. Are, are you allowed to do that in Ohio? Are you allowed to mention those guys north of the border? Yeah, yeah, I can. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let me ask, uh, let me ask about your expectations for this program. And in terms of, uh, first of all, expectations for the kids and what kind of style coach you are, do you, uh, are you anticipating that, you know, the way you'll be kind of the, that you'll kind of manage these kids is different than they've experienced before? Or do you think it'll be pretty similar? You know what? It's, it's hard for me to comment what was happening here. You know, being away in Ann Arbor for, for two years and in an intense environment, you only know what's going on in your own building. So I can't comment. Obviously, they've done some really good things here. Uh, so, you know, it, but I, I don't have time to, to sit and look and see what everybody did prior. It's, it's time for me to get my feet on the ground and, and, and do what I do and, know, and who I am. You know, and I'm, a, you know, coming from who I am and, and the environment I grew up in, you know, I'm very hands-on day-to-day uh, -day with the players. You know, I start my day at 5 a.m. here. Uh, making sure that everybody sees that my office is open when they go to the 6 a.m. lift or 6 a.m. run, and, and uh, they need to know that I'm here for them. You know, I, I don't have formal meetings with the guys right away. I've only started Monday, so, but I pretty much know everybody. Everybody knows me, you know, who I am. You know, I'm a guy that, like, puts my hands around the guys and, and hugs them, and, and, I, and I'm a real excitable guy. Uh, you know, it, it could be intense on the field when need be, but... Um, you know, I'm just a worker, you know, blue collar approach to everything, you know, just, uh, just get dirty. Um, I coach that way too. And, and you know, I, I don't sit from the side, I get right into it. And I'm primarily of a defensive background and I have a vision of what we want to do offensively. So, um, you know, I'll be integrated and phased in, in every aspect of the program. Um, and that just, that's who I am. Is it going to be tough to follow a guy, first of all, who, you know, you're going to be a, a different mindset, as you mentioned, Tom Arth, very much an offensive guy, was a, you know, star of the team, a multiple-time All-American, took them to the national semifinals as a player, uh, went to the NFL, and then uh, took them to the national semifinals as a coach. That's a, you're coming in 
facing a, a, a legacy from a relatively young guy who, uh, who did a lot of things in a relatively short time. Yeah, it's a credit, man. It, what a successful, you know, uh, run here. Um, it's great for the area. It's great for the school. But if I'm motivated on other people's uh, success or accomplishments and uh, in, in threatened in any way or, or worried about it, or uh, it, then you're not going to you're not going to succeed in the job. You know, and, and what are my goals? You mentioned earlier, my goals is to, to make this program make every person a little bit better tomorrow than they were yesterday. And, and and on to the next day. And our goal is to uh, be prepared for spring ball. Come out of there, you know. And you think about things that we do. You know, I think about an, a Martin Luther King quote, you know, and and it goes to, you know, take it one step at a time. Don't look don't look at the entire staircase. Just take it one step at a time. And, and you have to believe and have faith in in what you're doing and, and what you believe in and the people that are around you. And, and by the end of it, you know, you'll be safely at the top of the staircase. And uh that's just my approach and what I do. So I don't really get bogged down on that, you know, and in, in, uh, in goals and different things like that. To me, it's it's if you're not paying attention to getting strong in the weight room and you're not conditioning yourself and you're not having a great spring practice and the schemes aren't getting in and you're not tough minded, um, you know, you're, you're going to you're not going to be the best that you can be. Uh, I have to ask you about something that's uh, a lot closer to the top of the staircase anyway. Uh, you were left with uh, a pretty tough schedule. Obviously, the Ohio Athletic Conference is one of the toughest in Division Three in general, but you also start with the team uh, that ended your season last year and went on to play in the Stag Bowl in UW-Oshkosh. I know game day is more than seven months down the road, but uh, what what are your initial thoughts on you know playing them right out of the gate after uh, the way the season ended last year? It's a gift it, for these players to have only two marks against them in, in, a, in a successful 2016, 2016 season, to have two marks from the same team and then have to be able to open up against them. I can't think of a better gift for a, a group of young men that, you know, have to get up and, and train and, and motivate you, you know. And, and I've always done that. When I was at St. Ed's, we, we always scheduled the best right away, you know, and, and, and I just – I just think that's that's your reward. You know, you, you go right out of the gate, you're going to find out what you got, you know, and, and whether it's good, you know, you've, you've done a, a good job preparing for that team and, and your season and your off season and your preparation. And if you struggle a little bit, well, you got some time to figure it out, you know, as you get into the rest of your season. Uh, I'd rather find out week one than have to wait till you know, week seven or eight that we didn't address a few issues. And playing a team like that, they'll, they'll expose your weaknesses, their Great coaching staff, great players, well-accomplished programs. So I just think it's it's the uh, it's a gift and, and it's exciting. Keith, it's not often that we get a chance to talk to a coach so early in his tenure. I know the uh, audio was a little muffled, a little static at times, but as he mentioned, uh, he officially started this past Monday, so we talked to him on day five, and that is, there's a lot going on at John Carroll right now. Earning your your players' trust and and getting to know people on campus is, is sort of a hallmark of these coaching transitions. But I think the thing that stood out to me, besides how you know pretty likable uh, Rick Finati is in, in that interview, is that um, the, the experience level for that job, it's almost it's such a perfect fit for him to have coached in Ohio high schools, which means he already has connections um, yeah. with the type of schools he's going to recruit from, to have coached at a Catholic high school, um, to have ties in the Cleveland area, all that stuff means their recruiting is going to hit the ground running. And usually when you have a coaching turnover, you 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 have a you know five-week 
gap or, or however many weeks it's been since since Tom Marth went to Chattanooga. He, he, they, they still have that gap, but they're going to be able to make it up more quickly and they're going to be able to produce over the course of time really well because he's already an Ohio guy. He has ties in Michigan. He has ties from going to all these camps. Um, it sounds like uh, they'll, he'll, he'll do really well recruiting to, to John Carroll, which is good because that means the hire is not just crossing their fingers that they hope he'll be able to keep uh, this current team together that 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 Tom Marth and and that coaching staff built that he'll actually be able to to build on it and sustain it and to be honest the better John Carroll is the better it is for for those of us watching from afar if Mount Union has a rival if there are more than one team out of that conference as a legitimate national contender it makes things more exciting and I, and I think um, I come away from that interview very optimistic that that it's a possibility. You mentioned the Catholic thing, which was something I had not considered, and so they may have to take my uh, Catholic card away for that. Um, <laughs> but you know, definitely the uh, the the Cleveland area aspect, uh, you know, keeping somebody in that area who at least has the Cleveland ties, I'm sure, is a big help for them. Um, you know, also something obviously we did not talk about with Fanati, but uh, I thought maybe you and I could talk about too is that uh, one of their big rivals, of course, uh, Baldwin Wallace, more or less just down the street. I don't know the specifics. Um, I'll hope to check that out in September. Um, it, you know, they hired Jim Hilbert, so there's a new head coach there. There's a reason for some significant optimism at Baldwin Wallace for the first time in a while, too. Yeah, Jim Hilbert is the guy who uh, helped build Thomas Moore to its current level, and then now Thomas Moore is coached by the old John Carroll coach in in uh, Regis Scaife. So there's a lot of uh, overlap between the two. Uh, Hilbert went to uh, to high school won two state championships, and I guess decided he uh, wanted to get back into the game at the D3 level. Uh, Baldwin Wallace is a great place to be. It's a, pro- it's a kind of a proud program that has been up and down over the past, I guess, 10, 10 years. You know, some years they, they could be a eight-win program, some, some years three wins, five wins. So uh, Hilvert, a guy who has um, experience building a, a, a consistent – contender for a conference championship for a playoff spot uh, from his time at Thomas More. If he can get Baldwin Wallace to that level, uh, that'll also you know, reflect the same thing that I said about John Carroll, that the more contenders there are alongside Mount Union, you know Mount Union's not going to fall off. Yep. Uh, Vince Karras has done a great job. This past year may have been his best coaching job. So now you have at least three. Uh, Heidelberg probably is, is a fourth. Um, at least four staffs in, in the uh, conference that have a something to sell that is, you know, to recruits, something to sell that is enticing, uh, a, a past, a history of success. And um, it's going to make recruiting really interesting in, in and around Ohio. Although, um, you know, some of those schools have, have spread further afield. Mountain Union has done a great job pulling kids from as far as Florida. Um, I, I think that's, I, I think the better, when you see the centralization of really good coaching, and we've seen it uh, in the WIAC the past few years, uh, the better that is for everybody watching. Because now you just don't have one dominant program. You have three or four who, uh, who all make a run at the conference championship each season. Yeah, I would, I would throw Ohio Northern in there. Maybe not necessarily as a, a, a chance to win the conference title each season, but one of those other programs that has something to sell. Um, Wilmington trying to get off the mat. They have uh, changed coaches again. Uh, but there are some very... There's some winnable games in the OAC. They we we talked about I guess maybe four or five years ago now when the uh, when about half of the conference changed coaches um, 
and there were a bunch of young programs at that point that um, you know the conference might have a little bit of a fall off uh, and it seems like we have had that a little bit but not the two teams at the top obviously well yeah it's it's traditionally been a conference where at least two teams are competitive one at the super elite level and one at the maybe get in the playoffs and win a game or two level but this past season was the first time in a long time where you had two really good uh, obviously semifinal level OAC programs and then you still had that bottom five or six that wasn't very competitive and uh, and you know that leads to a lot of, of arguments and discussions across the country about how good the conference is and and the only the the big counter argument besides the teams at the top is the quality of player who comes out of the oac you see guys uh get their shots in the nfl from the oac and it's not just mountain union kids it's it can be heidelberg and ohio northern kids so it, it's uh, it's not just a one-team conference but i think the bet that recruiting all those new coaches having ties to division three having um good contacts already with high schools really be helpful um, for, for, for keeping the top half of the conference at least really competitive amongst one another. Congratulations to all of the nominees and to all of you finalists that are here tonight. You guys truly embody what it means to be a true student athlete. On behalf of Jostens, I am proud to announce the winner of the Gallardi Trophy, Carter Hansen. Back on the Around the Nation podcast, and now we're joined by Carter Hansen, uh, now a former linebacker for St. John's University and, of course, the winner of the 2016 Gallardi Trophy. Carter, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Pat. Yeah, so uh, first off, uh, where is the trophy? Where does it sit? Where does it live? Right now it's uh, it's on Gary's uh, desk in his office. I think he's kind of, show as recruits come in, he likes to have it on his desk, <laughs> kind of showing them what the trophy looks like, so... Yeah, especially considering um, the trophy looks a little different than uh, any previous ones you guys might have around. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit smaller, which is nice. Um, it's only, I think, 63 pounds, something like that. So when I first lifted it up at um, at the event, I was like, man, I already lost it. Because like, I was like, this is heavy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I, it's about the same, I think, as the, uh, as the old one was. It's just so much more compact. I kind of assumed it would be lighter, but... Uh, I don't know what they put in the in the base of that thing, but it's uh, it, it it's clearly not gonna it's not gonna blow away. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, I remember that. Uh, of course, you had some prepared remarks that you uh, that you gave after you were named the winner, and, and of course, you talked uh, on the air with Frank Rossi on our broadcast. But now, having had you know almost six weeks to reflect on it, what does it mean to be named the winner of the Gallardi Trophy? Yeah, I mean. Um... It still is kind of a little surreal. Um, you know, I, like you said, it's been six weeks since, um, you know, I was named the winner. But, um, you know, it's just very humbling. Like I said at the beginning, I sometimes think back and, like, you know, there's so many qualified and, and really good football players that did a lot of cool things around the community and in the classroom that were definitely worthy of, of this award. But, you know, to bring it back to St. John's is, is something really special, especially with um, – you know, obviously it's named after John, who uh, I just took a class with this uh, last semester in the fall. So, uh, you know, to bring it back and have it at St. John's is, is really cool. And, um, you know, the coaches, you know, are just ecstatic that, uh, you know, we because we have the last person who uh, who won it for St. John's was back in the early 2000s, Blake Elliott. And, um, 
you know, it's a, it's a really cool, um, you know, thing to be able to do for, you know, your college. And, you know, with an award like this, obviously it, there's a lot of different moving parts and there's a lot of people that, that really made it happen and, and to bring it back and kind of makes my coaches and, and family and teammates proud was something that, uh, you know, was really special for me too. What kind of reaction did you hear from, uh, from John himself? From John, he uh, he's so he's ninety now, yeah. so uh, he doesn't get around too much. But he sent me an email, and um, I also he he was watching live. Um, there was a video out on Facebook of um, of him watching the ceremony, and um, it was really cool just to see um, him and his wife's reaction to to win, to me winning. He's like, you know, that's a Johnny. And then uh, when I mentioned his talked about him a little bit in my acceptance speech. Um, he was, I think, pretty flattered about that. I think I don't think he expected, uh, you know, anyone to talk about him uh, for the award. But he sent me a really nice email, just um, you know, saying, you know, representing St. John's and and everything like that. And he thanked me for uh, giving him a shout out in my acceptance speech too. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, wh- how would how would you not do that, right? Yeah, that's. I thought that was step number one. That was the first thing I had on my list. All right, got to fit John in there somewhere. <laughs> Um, you talked about, uh, at the time you talked about the twos, uh, too short, too slow. I think I've forgotten one. I don't remember. Uh, I thought there was a third one. Um, too, yeah, too small, whatever. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think also when we kind of pondered who might win the Gilardi trophy, especially looking at the four finalists, we didn't know if you scored too high on the football player range of the spectrum, right? I mean, the academics and the community service off the charts, you know, uh, it, it can't beat a 4.0. You've done some amazing work <clears throat> in the community and for St. John's outside of the community as well. Um, were you surprised, though, that uh, considering that you probably weren't the best football player there from a pure football playing standpoint? Yeah, I mean, um, there is a debate with that. But, I mean, kind of the integrity of, of Division Three, and, um, you know, and I think the Glarity Trophy is being that well-rounded individual where it's not, a hundred percent in one area. You I mean, you gotta, you know, think about all three areas. So that was, but yeah, I was definitely surprised that, um, you know, that I was selected as the winner. You know, there was three other really good dudes up there who were really good football players. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm the best football player in division three. Cause I, you know, that's not the case, but, um, you know, it's just, um, humbling to, to be able to, you know, be selected as the winner. But, um, you know, the, the votes came in, I guess that's, uh, that's the way they decided it. Yeah, and and that's one of the great things about this award, of course, is it really does reflect the spirit of Division Three. Having all all three of those aspects is important for any Division Three student athlete, and really should be important for kind of people in the world in general these days. Yeah, absolutely. What is uh, what does next year look like for St. John's? You know, t- tell us a little bit about uh, who are the guys who are coming back and that sort of thing. Sure, I can give a little scouting report. I'm not going to get too into the weeds in case any Tommies are listening, but, um, <laughs> no, we're, um, we're going to have a very potent offense next year. I mean, we have, uh, a lot of our top receivers back. Um, Evan Clark, um, is, is back, uh, cause he got hurt a couple years ago and just found out he was able to have a medical red shirt. Uh, we weren't sure if he was going to get it and he did. And, um, you know, Jackson Erdman, obviously, and Ben Alvord are two quarterbacks this year are both coming back with a lot of, uh, experience and a couple other receivers, Dan Harrington, a senior this year, uh, who's a starter, got hurt early, got a medical red shirt, and then Matt Miller, another receiver, got hurt this year, medical red shirt. So we're gonna have a lot of really good uh, weapons on the offense, and um, 
actually our one of our really good bigger backs, Kai Barber, got a medical redshirt this year as well. So we were had some injuries for sure this year on the offense, but yeah. you know those guys are coming back and you know they got um, some experience under their belt and they're going to be looking pretty good on the offensive side. And then obviously O line is always a huge part of the game, and we're gonna have some you know a few holes to fill there. We got some seniors graduating, but we got some young guys in there working their butts off, and um, they're gonna make some things happen. And then uh, defensively, we. We graduated, I think, six or seven seniors, but you know those next the, the second string guys, you know those next guys in were could have easily been been out there. I mean, we were so deep on defense this year that it was tough for those guys that were in that second string spot not to be on the field because they were such good players. And now this this next year, they're going to have an opportunity to get out there and and uh, you know show the coaches and you know the fans and and whoever you know what they can do. So. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about uh, you know the future of Johnny football and I think we're going to be a very competitive team next year. Did you watch the Stag Bowl at all? Yeah, I did. What, what, what was your take on it? Obviously, you you guys got knocked out by Oshkosh and they uh, they took that game pretty much down to the wire. Obviously. Yeah, I mean Oshkosh is a you know a great football team and it was just a you know a defensive battle, which those are kind of the games that I like watching. But um, yeah, those those the semifinal and then uh, and then final. I mean it was. Pretty low scoring, as you saw. I think some sort of D three record of how low of scoring games they were, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, the lowest scorings, uh, the lowest scoring semifinals, and then like the second or third lowest scoring championship, something like that. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I like seeing that just because uh, you know that means your defense is playing well, <laughs> which uh, you know as a defensive guy, you know, I kind of like seeing that. But I'm sure some of the fans are looking for more uh, high potent offenses. But um, you know, I thought it was uh, you know just a battle. Uh, there were just two great teams in the finals, and um, it, was a, it was a fun game to watch. All right, so what's next for you? I know you still have uh, some classes to finish up uh, and that sort of thing, uh, but where do you uh, what are you looking to do after graduation? Uh, this last semester, I uh, had 12 credits until graduation. Uh, pretty crazy to think about. but um, So I'm a global business major with a, a finance focus, and I'm hoping to get into investment banking, um, hopefully in the Twin Cities. Um, I have some interviews lined up and talking to a few people, but um, still looking for that job opportunity <laughs> right now. So um, just kind of grinding away at that and trying to make some phone calls and um, uh, you know get interviews lined up. So my goal there wasn't to say, hey, you shouldn't have won the Gilardi Trophy because you know Keith, you and I have talked a lot about uh, on the podcast about how difficult it is to balance the best football player aspect of the award with the academics and community service facets. But uh, there was definitely a lot of talk on social media about Hanson winning the trophy after the fact, and it seemed like he was aware that it was a pick that people talked and wondered about. Yeah, I think he questioned him pretty pretty tough for uh, for a guy who's been uh, enjoying the the award for six weeks now. But, um, you know, something that we talked about on the podcast at the time and the expectation with awards like this generally can be that the mo- guy with the most prolific offensive numbers always wins it. Um, and the Gallardi Trophy's done a good job of not necessarily being a just best quarterback or running back award. It's It's gone around the board. We've seen defensive tackles win it. We've seen uh, tackles on offense win it we've seen safeties win it so it's it's not just that um but i do think it was a little bit uh, of a surprise at the time you have the logical assumption that the award is sponsored and given out by the the j club of uh, of is it j club of collegeville 
I think that's the St. John's University J Club, I guess, if we're talking about specifically what the name is. But basically, it's the St. John's uh, Athletics Alumni Club. Thank you for rescuing me there. You bet. Um, so, yeah, anytime someone from St. John's wins it, you can you can certainly make the, the connection there. Um, I, I, you know, I was on record saying I thought Sam Riddle should have won it. I thought Baylor Mullen should have at least been in the Final Four. I know you felt similarly. Um, but... You listen to the, the the ten minutes we just had with Carter Hanson. You you see, um, you know, without ever having met him, already he comes off as um, humble, self-aware, uh, clearly a driven guy, guy who would probably be a great teammate. And he, he wasn't a, a bad player; he was still an outstanding player. So I, I think, um, you know, in hindsight, you look at it and you say that's a, a really great guy to to be. Um, representing Division Three as the player that uh, that won the trophy this year, I think though, you know, we've gotten direction in the past um, to to specifically focus on the football aspect. You want to give the your votes to the best. You and I are both voters. You want to give our votes to the best player that also meets the other two criteria. Yeah. And this seems like uh, going back to someone who was outstanding in all three criteria, equally outstanding in all three. And so, you know, maybe the uh, we need to figure out which one the award's going to be. There's no wrong way to do it. And whenever they get down to the 10 finalists, there's no bad players. The guys are all outstanding. Guys, you, you know, I hate to say this because my, my – my daughter's getting older, but you know that—that's the coaching cliche, right? They say, "Oh, guy, it'd be a guy you—you'd uh, be happy to have your, your daughter date." Oh, yeah. All I'm, right. I'm not—I'm not there yet. Maybe, maybe the way Dale Olmstead says it later in in his podcast interview, he says uh, he wants his program to be somewhere where he'd be proud for his kids to play. So you want—you want these uh, all these Gallardi Trophy guys are guys you'd be proud to have in your program, and and uh, you know proud to have representing division three especially you know when we have the perspective of 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 the other side um i I think you know carter was a pretty great guy and a funny guy and he was gracious to answer that question because um certainly he uh it could have been awkward and it wasn't but yeah i do think the award but we probably have to figure out which one it's going to be or maybe this is just kind of an odd year with no runaway candidate with a little bit of foreshadowing, we'll uh, talk with Dale Olmstead come back, coming back in just a minute here. I'd like to start this interview by revisiting a play call from two and a half months ago, if you don't mind. Uh, but before we talk about it, let's hear how it sounded on the Vice Sports Network. Ryan Hayden and Eric McCarthy on the call. It's on the two-yard line. Martinoli in single coverage over here on the near side. Mullins. He'll take the snap. He looks over for Martinoli. Throws it up. Martinoli up with it. He's in the end zone. He's in the end zone. Two-point conversion. And the Bison have done it. The Bison win it. They now have six wins on the year. Huge play. Mullins to Martinoli. Mullins to Martinoli. And this game belongs to the Bison. What a game. Eric McCarthy. Wow. Called that too, that he was gonna go to Tony right there. Head coach, again, head coach Del Olmstead said, No way, we're not doing it. We're not going another overtime. Let's settle this right now. It was either gonna be a win for the Bison or a loss for the Bison right then and there. Mullins draw back. Nice double move by Martinoli into the corner. He jumped up and he grabbed it. Coach, you obviously know the record of the program you inherited, but to finish with six wins this past season, your third as a head coach, where the program had only six wins in its previous 63 games, that has to feel like a significant accomplishment. Uh, an, an incredible accomplishment. I'm so, I'm so proud 
uh, this team, uh, the coaching staff, the players, you know, the faculty, the alumni, everyone that, um, you know, stood, you know, stood by this program, um, through the thick and thin. And, um, you know, I'm really, really happy to be a part of this, uh, you know, hopefully rebirth college football. Tell us a little bit about the state of the program when you took over. Uh, I'm always interested to hear, like, how many players struggling programs have when there's a, an off-season coaching change and that sort of thing. Um, you know what? I, I would say, you know, any any coach that takes over a struggling program is certainly going to have his challenges. Um, when I got there, um, I would they were lucky there was 10 kids in the weight room. Um, the attitude of the team wasn't quite there. I remember the first day I was walking into the cafeteria, and I was getting yelled at by the woman in there, like, your football players are leaving, you know, stuff on the table. And, you know, just, just you know, when things go wrong on the football field, things tend to also go wrong off the field. And that was certainly the case. And, you know, and I, I don't say that the, the kids were bad or the coaches. It just it was just a different atmosphere that I'm hoping, you know, culture, as I like to call it. You know, when I got there, um, you know, I wanted to fix what we could control and, and kind of go from there, and um, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that you know this week, you know, I believe we had 55 kids in the weight room, and you know, it was it was an incredible sight to go down there, look at all these kids, you know, banging the weights away, and and I'm uh, very very proud of um, about the guys that stayed with the program and and the kids that we're bringing in. How did you instill that sort of culture change? Accountability and a lot of patience, um, and just sort of sticking by our standards. I just want guys to be accountable. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're not running a military camp by any means, but, you know, we want things done a certain way. I mean, your kids are in college. They're going to experiment. They're going to do a lot of things. But, you know, I just want people to be respectful for, for one another. And, um, you know, and again, hold guys accountable. We all make mistakes, and, uh, and that's fine. Uh, but we need to learn from our mistakes. And, um, you know, I, I think we are. And I, I think that is why there's a lot of pride that's, you know, gone on over the last few years. And, and again, winning certainly helps. And as much as a coach wants to do, is wants to change the culture, and, I, and it's a huge part of it when you to keep kids and when you bring new kids in to establish that, you know. But but in the end, to help us get where we needed to, to be, and it was certainly the you know the efforts of the, the coaching staff and administrating and, and bringing on the, the type of kid that we that you know that we want to recruit. So, um, you know, again, very, very proud of of, of uh, where we're at and, and what we could accomplish. We talked to you last year for kickoff, and that means that here in one of our first interviews of 2017 is our first uh, our first sales pitch for kickoff. But uh, talking about what it's like recruiting to a program that's uh, trying to get itself off the mat, so to speak. And, and one of the things that you mentioned in our article, of course, was the opportunity to play right away. Uh, and in the case of Chris Mullins, your freshman quarterback last season, uh, not only did he play right away, but he had a huge impact. Phenomenal, phenomenal athlete. Uh, he's a great, great player. Um, and that is, yeah, and that is something that we can sell as a program when you are sort of rebuilding or starting up is, is giving the kids an opportunity to play college football, which is a lot of dreams of, of the kids, the seniors that are out there. There's a lot of, a lot of high schools in this country, and, but not a lot of colleges where kids can play. And um, with the program that's rebuilding or starting up, uh, to, to put that, to entice them with that, you know, is, is, a, good, is a good thing. And, um, you know, and, and, and we've been able to do that, um, you know, rebuilding and, and not, not just the opportunity, but the facilities, as I mentioned, it's a, it's a team effort. Uh, the schools, you know, probably put in over $20 million with the brand new turf field, uh, lockers, training room, hiring a full-time strength and conditioning coach. So, um, you know, for our particular, um, you know, issues were addressed that we could. And then again, giving kids the opportunity to play was also another positive thing. So it's, 
it definitely, um, you know, when you're building a program, wanting to do that. And then, you know, this is my first year, you know, coming a successful season, you know, six and four, a four game winning streak in the off season. And it's a lot easier. I'll tell you that. I mean, we had a game for us, Curry, um, you know, we had a recruiting day and, and usually we get half the kids that say they were going to come. I think we had, you know, almost twice as many kids that were, you know, said they were going to come, come. So and that was our first sort of feel on how things were going to go. Because at that, that time, you know, we had a couple wins, you know, having them come to a game. We had the most amount of kids we've had attended. Um, at this point in time, we've had more kids, you know, quote, verbally commit uh, than ever before. So, you know, I, I'd like to think that, you know, winning has certainly helped, um, you know, bring the recruits in a lot easier this year than in the past. And Nichols uh, is the kind of school where, uh, a stable program at, in terms of football, let alone a successful program, can have a pretty huge impact on the terms of uh, enrollment and the bottom line for the institution. I like to think so. You know, um, you know, school about twelve hundred students, and if you can get a hundred on that football team, you're almost tying for ten percent of the school's population. So, you know, to have a successful team, to have you know good young men be the leaders of the school is, is what we want to do. Um, and um, you know, as I said, we're on the way of doing that. And again, winning helps. It, it certainly. Um, you know, it's tougher early on. Our guys were putting in the work and not seeing the results. And I'm sure they were looking at me and thinking I was nuts. And they probably am. And, um, you know, they just, they, again, they stuck by me and were able to bring on some really impact freshmen. And, and it all kind of gelled together for us. And we look forward to uh, next season. Uh, we talked about Mullins a little bit. Obviously, a huge impact as a freshman. Who were some of the other guys that had big impacts for you last year coming out of that class? Well, I mean, I'd say, you know, the cut you just heard of uh, the past, Tony Martinoli, I mean, uh, he came in for us as a, as a quarterback as well. Um, he, you know, was such an athlete. You know, we said, well, we can't have a kid like this sitting on the bench. We moved him to wide receiver. So early on, he didn't have the, uh, he didn't have the numbers, um, you know, that he did the second half of the season. That's strictly because, he, you know, we weren't sure what we were going to get from him. Uh, but Tony did a great, great job. He set records on the receiving uh yardage, um, number of catches in a game. And then we also have a young man down the street uh, from Ellis Mass named Josh Pierre-Charles. Um, he was our leading rusher. He broke a uh, rushing Nichols record in a single seat in a single game for Santa Maria. And, um, you know, he's come back and, you know, I saw him running around outside. He looked outstanding. So our guys are, you know, they're, they're working hard and, you know, again, I'm, I'm very, very proud of the coaches and the, and the, um, the faculty supporting the program through the through the tough times, and, and hopefully we just some good times ahead. Your conference gets a bit of a shakeup this year. Uh, the NEFC changes brands, so to speak, and will compete as the Commonwealth Coast Conference going forward, uh, So, like the rest of the Nichols Athletics programs do. Uh, MIT, Coast Guard, Maine Maritime, no longer part of the conference schedule. How does that affect uh, your guys' schedule in uh, 2017 and then going forward? Um, you know, certainly, you know, makes it challenging from an administrative point to try to find out, you know, try to find the matches uh, out there. We're fortunate enough to have the U.S. Coast Guard. I believe we're, we're going to play each other for an additional four more years. You know, it's a great, anytime you can play an academy, uh, you know, the U.S. Coast Guard or anyone like that, it's just a great, it's a great thing for your program. And, um, you know, so for us, for them to be less than an hour down the road, uh, kind of, kind of very you know even programs it's a good game for both schools um you know since i've been here i think we were we won last year lost the previous two but they've been pretty close games pretty competitive games and, and that's what they won you know both i think you know i don't know from my i don't want to speak for coach george but certainly respect their program and 
you know, hopefully we can maintain some of the relationships that we've built when I'm with the New England Football Conference. Uh, some of them, like, I think MIT is going to play. I'm not sure who they, who they locked on with. But I, I think a lot of the schools that did leave the conference um, are going to remain, um, you know, as, as non-league games for the teams that are in the CCC. Um, then we got the addition of backup for us. It's not as big of a deal because we've played them the last, you know, previous three seasons. So yeah. it'll be a great addition to the league. Um, you know, an MIT, uh, we're not going to play too much. And then they're, they're, they're a great team. My coach does a great job over there. I mean, you talk about kids that they get from all over the country. MIT is a, obviously a great academic school. So they're, they're pulling from some Ivy leagues, I think. And then with Maine Maritime, that's never a, um, a fun team to play up at Maine. That's an overnight for pretty much anyone that goes up there, you know, and they run the wishbone. So it's a real tough team to compete against. So again, uh, you know, I think Brendan Becker is a great thing. Certainly those three teams will be lost, but I'm sure relationships that have been built over the past few years are going to remain with a lot of the teams. You mentioned Coast Guard remains on the schedule. And in in essence, I'm kind of prying for schedule information because that's one of the other things that we do in January and February. <laughs> so who are the other non-conference teams that do you guys have on the schedule? Um, we're going to open up with uh, the top of my head, I believe. it's uh, We're at Westfield. No, Westfield's at our place. We're at Anna Maria. Uh, the Third game of the season, I think we might be at SUNY Morrisville, um, which would be an overnight for us, I believe. And then we have Dean. Um, I'm not sure what Dean will be because I think they're still in transition a little bit, uh, going from a JUCO to a Division three school. And um, then I think we get into league play. Well, I don't know if that would make uh, 10 games, I but think, um, I, I believe it's the U. Oh, no, we got U.S. Coast Guard in there as well. Okay. So it's uh, our nine leagues would be Westfield, Anna Maria, Dean, Morrisville, and Coast Guard. Those are our five non-leaguers. What sets a school such as Nichols apart from the other schools in the conference and in the area? In, in some senses, for us, maybe not for Keith because he has a bit of a Massachusetts background, but uh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between schools such as uh, Nichols and Salve Regina and Western New England and, and Curry and some of the other uh, schools that you guys compete with. Well, I mean, I, for me, it's a great conference. I mean, I think each school has its own identity, you know, um, depending on what you're looking for as, as a student athlete. You know, Salve, beautiful college right on, you know, right at Newport Beach and it's out of Newport, Rhode Island. Endicott, a gorgeous campus with the North Shores of Boston, um, you know, has, has, you know, has a lot to offer. Western New England is probably one of the bigger schools in the area for Division Three, out, out in the Berkshires. Um, and you have Becker, who is in northern Worcester County, uh, and then the Nichols, you know, is a isolated, you know, 1200, you know, business school, um, you know, 200 acres, you know, rolling hills, everything that you need is on campus. Um, just sort of that small community bonding feeling. Uh, that's what, you know, when, when I had my exit meeting with all my kids to bring my freshmen in here from all over the country. I mean, the one thing that they said, it was, it felt like a family right from day one. There's no, there's no, none of that stuff. You know, it's just, it's just a great place to be. You feel welcome right off the bat, and um, you know I have two sons of my own, and I try to try to build this program where I'd be proud to have, you know, you know them play for me, and hopefully that happens someday. But you know, and again, just it all goes back to just setting those standards and, and that culture, and so far the kids are buying into it, and hopefully you know this isn't a one-year thing. We're gonna we'll be around for a while. 
hey, if we're only going to give you a podcast once a month, at least we can make it a nice long one, right? Um, Keith, last year we predicted in kickoff that Nichols would go 3-7, and seven and, and that was more ambitious than the conference's preseason poll had them, which uh, had the Bison finishing dead last once again. But Nichols outperformed even our optimism, and to me that speaks to one of the difficulties of predicting some of these conference finishes, especially in New England. The uh, upward and downward mobility of that conference, along with the MASCAC, ECFC, and the NESCAC, means that sometimes it's just a matter of a couple of players or even a couple of plays between finishing last or finishing in the middle of the pack. Absolutely, Pat. And the people who know this best are the people who played in the games on on Saturdays or who coached in the games. There's a difference between the teams in your conference that you traditionally beat and you beat handily and it it was kind of easy and the teams that um, that kind of push you to the brink. And, you know, boy, we won that game, but we're lucky to get away with that one. Or they're they're really a lot better this year than last year. And sometimes those of us who are watching the games uh, from the press box or even further removed than that, it's harder for us to get a feel for who's next up um and and it kind of surprises me that the conference predictions aren't a little better at predicting who's next up because they're usually done by the folks uh, not not necessarily our kickoff ones although uh, our writers always talk to all the coaches in the conference but the 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 ones run by the conferences you'd think those teams would have a better sense of kind of who's coming down the pike but they traditionally go in the order that they went in the year before and there's you know coaches don't want to insult other coaches and they also don't want yeah. to um put a target on their own backs um so they sometimes those those conference um predictions are are very standard and, and it's a little slow to see the uh, the changes coming but also sometimes the changes are surprises even to the the teams themselves you know i don't know that nichols they you know they knew that they were headed in the right direction or they felt they were headed in the right direction but you don't know until you see them come through in the clutch in a couple of games in, in September and October, and then you start to realize that they actually are making that turnaround. Um, I, I remember that kickoff article when, when we um, talked to to Puget Sound and to Nichols about what it's like trying to turn around a program that's been consistently losing for a long time. And uh, and you go back, if if you went back and read that, and not that anybody's going to go log into last year's kickoff. Well, you should. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'll, I'll put a link in the uh, podcast page, at least, anyway. And um, some of that stuff that, that Dale Olmstead says in that piece is foreshadowing to what actually happened. And, and I thought it was good that we got to check in with him uh, on the other end of it and, uh, and talk a little bit about what it's like, um, you know, what the key is to building a, a program because you're, you're setting the, the, the bar, I guess, from jump. And I think the, the this podcast itself makes kind of an interesting contrast between Rick Fanati having to come in and preserve what someone else built, make sure that it doesn't backslide at all, and then Olmstead, who got to come in, basically had everything was laid bare, wasn't at all like he wanted it, and got to build it from scratch. As we get down to the final couple minutes here of our podcast uh, for January, uh, looking back at some of the other coaching changes, we talked about uh, Hilvert getting hired at Baldwin-Wallace. Um, Olivet had uh, a trip to the playoffs this past season, and then their head coach, Dan Pfeiffer, went to go to a Division II school, and they promoted from within. Um, we'll get more about Olivet in a second. Uh, St. Thomas lost its offensive coordinators, now the head coach at St. Olaf. Uh, that's uh, James Killian. Uh, Anna Maria gets another head coach. Uh, let's see. Lagrange is on the look uh, lookout for a new coach as uh, Matt Mummy 
uh, left to become the offensive coordinator at Nevada, new coach at Buena Vista. I'm not sure how much, Keith, any of these individual changes uh, make note, I, but I do know that, uh, you know, obviously we lose an interesting story, I guess, at LaGrange because that was at least fun to watch, if not necessarily super uh, competitive. Uh, I know Anna Maria has struggled the entire time that they've had uh, football, eight games in eight seasons. Um, I sometimes wonder maybe if the St. Thomas change, you know, losing their offensive coordinator might be the most impactful out of that group. That was the one that, that stood out to me from the, uh, from the, the list. Um, James Gillian, uh, you know, the Tommies cr- offensively are, are creative in a non, I mean, it's not, a, it's not necessarily a spread that you're used to. And actually that kind of makes them the, the anomaly. They give you so many for, they, a de- they give a defense so many formations to think about. Um, and I don't know how much of that is Glenn and how much of that was, was James, but it's, um, but it's good to at least have somebody who's, been very intimately involved in running an elite program go to St. Olaf because it, you know you go back to the days of Chris Might when uh when St. Olaf was was competitive and you know just as I said with the other conferences it's better to have more competitive programs uh throughout a conference so it may take a few years to get St. Olaf back to to where it was but you know the person running the show has at least been a big part of 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 running another really good program. Um, you know the other coaching moves that stood out, I think, were the were the ones we knew about back when the season was going on. Uh, Mike Welch stepping down in, in Ithaca, hiring Dan Swanstrom, um, and then uh, Darwin Bro and, and and John Snell, like long term Division three coaches, um, you know, stepping down from from their jobs, uh, whether it be voluntarily or not. And and this is the time of year where where some of our hottest prospects, like the the, the Tom Mars of the world, um, you know, move on to, to somewhere else. I think um, sometimes that goes in the way it went at Capital. Remember in like 05, 06, Jim Collins left and then Capital really hasn't ever been the same since. And then sometimes somebody else comes in uh, like Rick Finati might and it will be able to keep the, the program afloat. So that that'll bear watching over the course of the next several years. Yeah, I think one thing to keep in mind in those situations, too, is sometimes it's not the coaching change that uh, ends up bringing a program down. Sometimes the coach leaves when he sees that the athletic department as a whole or the university or the college as a whole is going in a direction that's not going to be favorable to football. Um, I think about uh, that maybe capital is in that situation. They were successful for a short amount of time under Collins and then you know, I think it was a combination of both of those things. Um, That's a good point. I wouldn't have thought of that. One other note before we uh, before we head out. Um, so uh, one thing I've been tracking is uh, Ryan Anderson, who is the punter at Olivet, uh, which normally is not something you would necessarily maybe keep track of, but he was a first-team All-American. Uh, he was also the Academic All-American of the Year. He's looking for a grad school to play his final year of eligibility at, and so he's gotten some D1 interest. He's got, uh, you know, a, one of the biggest legs in Division Three in terms of punters, so that's a guy who could be punting uh, in a, uh, on television next year. That's at least something to keep an eye on. Cause you know, we know that sometimes those guys then have a path to go, uh, to go on further. Right, Keith? Sure. The, the Steven Hauschka one is the one that comes to mind. Kicker from Middlebury, uh, does a year, uh, at NC state, um, of, of grad work. And then now has been the, the kicker in Seattle for a handful of years. So there is a path 
uh, to the NFL for for D three guys, and it's always it's striking to me because it's just so hard not being a scout, figuring out which guys uh, have that opportunity. And when somebody comes from a Beloit or an Olivet yeah. somewhere like that, you know, it's uh, it, it's interesting. Yeah, we'll talk more about uh, NFL prospects and that sort of thing, like I said, in our February podcast. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 165 for January 2017. Thanks for listening. Tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like our podcast, and we hope you do, please consider rating it in iTunes or wherever you consume your podcasts because uh, that will help other football fans find it. And thanks for following Division Three Football on D3Football.com. The executive producer of Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Additional audio from the Bison Sports Network and DMAC Productions. Thanks to our guests, Rick Finati, Carter Hansen, Dale Olmsted, and also thanks to sports information directors Chris Wenzler and Dale Armbruster, Ryan Klinkner, and Pete DeVito for their time helping set up this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host Keith McMillan. We're in our off-season podcast mode, so you'll get a new show monthly from now through August. Check back in to hear from Division Three football newsmakers every four weeks or so before we get into our weekly podcast for the 2017 season, which can't come soon enough. What a good way to end it. <laughs> yeah, actually, I, 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 I need a few more weeks to set stuff up. I, it, it doesn't have to go right now. Like I got uh, maybe... Uh, what, uh, 185 schedules left to go find, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a lot. Gotta set, up, a lot. Gotta set up kickoff. Created most of the 2017 team pages. I got those 1998 schedules are on the website now. Woo-hoo. Yeah. Hey, we get, get pretty close to... I can start looking at my box scores. <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to keep looking to see if I can get... Uh, how many box scores I can get. Uh, stat crew yeah. files from 1995. Sure. We well, we were definitely not in that. Uh, we were handwritten. Probably the last ones that come over. <laughs> yeah, I remember hand typing play-by-play for a box score in 1994. Oh my God! Electric, you didn't have any interns for that? An electric typewriter. No, the guy who I had an intern who had a laptop, and that was our usual guy who did who typed up the play-by-play. But he was unable to do the last game, so I had to do it on an electric typewriter. Not only did I lose the guy, but I lost the the laptop, which was rare at that time, I guess.